Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I'd like to draw our attention to the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We'll begin reading in verse 10 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 556, 556 on the Pew Bible. Hope that the words that we just sang, whatever my God ordains is right, you have that understanding, that confidence in your life, whatever my God has ordained in my life, past, present, future, it's right. I can trust Him. He will not forsake me. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word together? I'll begin reading in verse 10 of Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We will read all the way through cha- uh, verse 14 of chapter 7. This is God's Word. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. 
Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, take your word, plant it deep within our hearts and minds. Use it to shape and fashion us into the likeness of Jesus. All for your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. To live in this world is to experience suffering. We've all been affected by it. Each one of us could tell of our own story and how suffering has tinged that story with tears, with difficulty, with hardship. Lives of suffering don't just abound around us. Lives of suffering also abound in the Bible. But maybe the most well-known event is one man's life whose name was Job. Job, it was said, was a blameless man, an upright man, a man who feared God and who turned away from evil. And God blessed him with great wealth and property and children. And then one day, bad news came into his life. And it was not just a little bit of bad news. It was wave after wave after wave of bad news. Job, all of your oxen and donkeys were stolen, and all of, the sl- all of the servants that were attending to them, they died as well, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Job, fire from heaven fell on all of your sheep and all of the servants who were watching those sheep, and they all died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Job, all of your camels were stolen and all of your servants were put to death and I alone have escaped to tell you. Job, there was a great wind that came and all of your children were having a feast in that house and that wind blew that house down, killing all of your children. And I alone have escaped to tell you. If you're keeping track, Job had 500 oxen 500 donkeys, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, very many servants, and 10 children, seven sons and three daughters. All of that gone in one day. If that wasn't enough, Job was struck with loathsome sores all over his body. From the top of his head to the soles of his feet. And he sat as a broken man 
with a broken piece of pottery in his hand, scraping the sores on his body, trying to find some relief in the midst of his painful physical situation. You might not have experienced suffering like that, but that fact does not negate the fact that you have experienced suffering. And it does not take away from the fact that the suffering that you have experienced has been intense. It has been painful. It has been difficult. Some of you, however, may have gone through some of what Job went through. Some of you may have had that day in your life where it seemed like everything was coming tumbling down. A day when everything that you love was stripped away from you. A day when everything that you held dear was suddenly gone. And even though that day may have been in your past, you still experience the pain, you still experience the hurt, you still experience the suffering, even up to this very moment. You still grieve and you're trying to pick up all of the pieces of everything that seems to be broken all around you. And you sit in darkness and you wonder, will the darkness ever lift? Will the pain ever go away? And what is it that we cry out in those moments? Why, God? Why has this happened to me? What is wrong? Why all of this adversity? And why now? And why does it have to hurt so much? For all of the time and effort that we put into our lives to try to control every aspect of our life. Everything that happens. Making sure that everything goes the way that we want it to go. How devastating it is when that plan for our life doesn't pan out. Because one thing is certain. If you were in control of your life, and if I was in control of my life, there wouldn't be any suffering in my life. There wouldn't be any difficulty. There wouldn't be any adversity. We would do everything that we could to cut that out of our life. And even though we might try to escape that, we know adversity, suffering, will find us. And we are not left unscathed by the wounds that it leaves in our lives, in our heart. For everyone who has been touched by suffering, for everyone who has been drenched with suffering, For everyone who has wrestled with the question, why, God? For everyone who has tried to struggle and unravel the questions of suffering and adversity in your life. All that you cannot escape no matter how hard you try. This text this morning is for you. Solomon in his wisdom given to him by God, leads us and teaches us why it is vain for you to try to control your life. Why it is vain for you to control your life and eliminate suffering and eliminate hardship and eliminate difficulty and eliminate the things that you don't want in your life. So 
So what is it that we must understand from the text this morning? You could follow along in your bulletins if that is helpful. But number one, the dilemma of the human condition leaves us restless. The dilemma of the human condition leaves us restless. A good place for us to start this morning is for us to be put in our place, and that's just what happens when we think about who God is and who we are in relation to God. Our verses start this way. Whatever has come to be has already been named. We're reminded what Solomon has already told us in his word. There is nothing new under the sun. There is nothing that has not already been named. Everything in this universe, everything in this world, everything that happens in the present is predetermined by God. God is never surprised. The things that happen in your life, God is not shocked off of the throne. God never says, I didn't see that coming. God is in control of everything, and he is over everything. And he has planned everything perfectly. God has planned everything in your life perfectly. Everything that has been named draws our minds back to creation, doesn't it? When God made everything, and he began to give things names. Light, darkness, Day, night, waters, heavens, dry land, sun, moon, stars. God named it all, but why? Because when you name something, you have authority over it. So God has authority over all things. There is nothing in this world that lies outside of his authority, and so nothing that lies outside of his control or outside of his domain. And this is significant in our lives every single day because we cannot name what God has already named. That is, we cannot usurp God's authority and try somehow to gain authority over God so that somehow we can determine what happens in our life. No, what happens in our life is guided by and led by and is under God's authority. It is the sovereign Lord over all things. And who are we? It goes on to say, It is known what man is. And what is man? He is a lump of clay that God has breathed life into. It is God who formed man out of the dust of the ground. We are those who are from the ground. Literally, we are earthlings. It's here that we're put in our rightful place because it shows us how weak we are. It shows us how frail we are. It shows us how finite and limited we are. And now after the fall, how sinful and depraved we are. And yet, it does not stop us from trying to dispute with God. Who is the one who is stronger than we are? It is God and God alone. It is the almighty God, the infinite God, the holy and sovereign God, the creator and the sustainer of all things. And we try to dispute with God. We try to argue with God. But we soon realize that we are not able to dispute because he is stronger than us. 
We can't argue with him who is more mighty than us. With him who knows the end from the beginning. And how often would we like to argue with God? How often would we like to contend with God? And say, God, this is not right. This should not be happening in my life. I know better. Isn't that what we're saying? I know what's better than you do. Remember, everything that happens to Job, and at the very end of the book of Job, here's what God says to Job. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Job, you've set, your up as a, you've set yourself up as a fault finder and you're going to contend with me? You're going, to, you're going to instruct me on what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and what's going on? And then God says, he who argues with God, let him answer it. And Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Job is saying, I can't even speak. Are we going to find fault with God? Are we going to argue against God and say, God is in the wrong, that there is something in our lives that should not be there? Argue that we have a better plan and a better way for our lives? And we then, as it says here in Ecclesiastes, produce more and more words. More and more words, we add to our argument, we line it up in our minds as to all the reasons why we are right. We're great lawyers when we have to defend our case. But what does Solomon say? More words? What? More words, more vanity. You don't get to the bottom of it. You don't get to figure it out. It's just more vanity. It's futile to try to do that. What is the advantage to man? The answer, there is no advantage, is there? And yet, how often do we go back again and again and again and try to say, God, I know better. We pile up our words to the heavens trying to make an airtight case against God, but it's all vanity. It gets us nowhere. We are left in the same place that we started. And woe to you if you try to have an argument with God. Listen to Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen vessels. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or, your work has no handles. Is that a picture? Imagine yourself working with a piece of clay, forming it into a pot, and then that pot turns to you and says, why are you making me like this? Why are you doing this? There's no handles on me. There's a problem. It's ludicrous. It's ridiculous. And yet, we would like to say that to God. God who made me, who created me, who has authority over me. Why have you done this to me? Why have you made me like this? This truth is pressed home with two questions that Solomon asks us. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? A life which passes like a shadow. Do you know what is good for man? Who are you but a fleeting vapor, a mist, a shadow that appears for one moment and that's gone the next? Who knows what is good for man? 
There's an implied answer there, isn't there? No one knows what is good for man. But there's a second question as well. Who can tell what will be after him under the sun? Again, the implied answer, no one can tell what will be man, what will, what will happen in the future, what will happen to him under the sun. And what Solomon is going to do now is going to answer these two questions. These two questions form the next section of the book of Ecclesiastes. And he's going to begin with this first question. What is good for man? And this is what, as we wrestle with these things, leaves us restless. It's this weakness, it's this powerlessness, it's this finiteness, it's this lack of control and authority, this inability to get to the bottom of anything in our life that leaves you, that leaves us restless. It doesn't bring peace, it doesn't bring any answers, and even though we so desperately try and desire to pull ourselves up out of this dilemma, to get out of this human condition, this predicament, we are restless because we feel what we should feel, that we are helpless. But Solomon does not leave us with this. He says, let me tell you, there are some good things in this life, things that are relatively good, but they may not be what you expect to be good in your life. So what is the good that Solomon points us to here? What is it that is going to remedy your restlessness as you might want to wrestle with God? Number two, Be content with God's transforming grace. Be content with God's transforming grace. And so Solomon holds out to us what is good. That idea of what is good is one of the threads that holds this text together. Solomon says again, what is good, what is good, or what is better? There are things that are good in this life, things that are better, but things that we don't expect to be good. But these things are good for a specific purpose. They are good because they have a transforming effect upon our life. These things are good because they do not leave you the way that that you are. They change you for the better. They give you a clearer view of life and a clearer view of God. These good things then are God's grace in your life. And being God's grace, they do what God's grace always does and what it's always meant to do. It doesn't leave you like you are. It transforms you. It changes you. So where does Solomon start? He starts with a good name. A good name that's better than precious ointment or perfume. People in Solomon's day wore perfume for special occasions. It was costly. It was a demonstration of how much wealth you had. But that's part of the point. You could buy it. You could buy perfume and put it on yourself as a demonstration to show other people how wealthy you were. But you can't buy a good name. You can't buy a good reputation. It takes time. It takes a lifetime, in fact. But let us be even more specific about what a good name looks like. It's not merely that you are thought well of by other people, but that it is a good name before God. A good name that is able to stand before him. 
And that is not a name based on your merits or all of the good things that you have done. How you have maintained your name. It's a good name that is able to stand in the presence of God because it is a name that is united to Christ. Your name is his name. That's how you get to this good name. How am I going to have a good name and a good reputation before God? It's because I bear the name of Jesus Christ, my Savior. To have someone whose name is written down somewhere by God himself, a truly good name is a name that is written in the Lamb's book of life. A good reputation before men, that will end. That will go away. A good reputation, a good name before God, that goes on into eternity. Parallel to this proverb is what Solomon says next. The day of death is better than the day of birth. That is backwards from the way that man thinks. The day of death is to be ignored. It's to be put out of your mind. Death is not celebrated, whereas birth is to be celebrated. But as we think about this, think about what Solomon says. The day of birth, that one who was born, there's a life ahead of that one to know suffering, evil, and pain, and restlessness. There's a whole life of that before that little child. That is just the beginning for the one born. But the day of death that one should be experiencing is to bring rest from this fallen world. We even get this idea in the New Testament. To depart and be with Christ is far better. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Would we see that the day of death is better than the day of birth? Would we affirm what is said here? Solomon even presses this further into our hearts because the next thing he says, he says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For the living, lay it to heart. It's better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a party. Why is that? Because when you go to a funeral, you can't escape death. It's there. It's in your face. And it's meant to confront you. It's meant to say, there is an end that it's going to come in your life. How are you living your life Right now. That's where transformation takes place. In these arenas where we least expect it. The places that we wouldn't go. It happens in the funeral house. This is where you will contemplate your life. Why you live your life the way that you do. The purpose of your life. Because unless the Lord returns first, we will die. You will die. And the living, those who are really living, will lay that to heart. They will think about it. They will contemplate it. They will not try to ignore it. They will not go to the house of feasting or the house of mirth. That's a place of distractions. That's a place to take your mind off of the day of death. That's where you do not think about your life. The living take it seriously. They don't ignore it. They don't distract themselves from it. And Solomon goes even further to say the heart of the wise person is in the house of mourning. It's not that you go there for a time and then leave. Solomon goes even further and says the wise of heart, they live there. 
They are in the house of mourning. It's not just for a time in their life. They dwell there. But the heart of the fools is in, lives in the house of mirth, the partying house, the house of feasting. Here's the point. When you have to confront death, you begin to live your life in light of the end. How I live my life today, now I live in light of the day, knowing that it's coming. I don't know when, but I will die. And I need to live my life now the way that I should live it before God. And one thing that Ecclesiastes does Ecclesiastes sets the context for which the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes sense. If the day of death is it for you, if that's all that there is, then life is vanity. Then life is futile. Everything Everything is in vain if Jesus Christ is not alive. Because you can't face the day of death. How do you face the day of death? I don't know how to face the day of death unless Jesus Christ is alive. Because I know that there is something that happens after death, like we read about today, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes what? Comes judgment. What will happen to you on that day of judgment for the way that you lived your life? Will it be a life of hope because your hope is in Christ, in a risen Lord? Or will your life have been one that was lived in the house of feasting? I've distracted myself from the reality of death. I didn't want to face the reality. I would rather forget about it, live it up now, have fun now. Jesus comes and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. That's the hope. That's how you can go into the house of mourning and not plummet to the depths of despair. Because Jesus Christ is where you get your life. Solomon goes on to say, sorrow is better than laughter. Solomon is not saying that you can never laugh, but he is saying that sorrow has a significant impact upon your heart and upon your soul so that God uses it as a means to change you. Jesus says the same thing. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It is the sorrow that does a work in your heart and so leads you to become glad. It is sorrow in your life that has a deeper, more lasting, and memorable impact that shapes the way that you live. God also uses the rebuke of the wise in your life. They tell you the truth in love. Such rebuke of the wise is better than the songs of fools. Those people who just tell you what you want to hear, even flatter you, and it becomes like music to your ear. You get songs stuck in your head? You walk around singing those songs to yourself? 
You don't want to get the song of fools stuck in your head. Because then you're not telling yourself the truth. The wise will even rebuke when rebuke is needed to bring that transformation, to bring that change upon your life. The song of the fools is dangerous because it doesn't lead you in a direction toward living your life before God, but instead it leads you to live for yourself. He goes on to say, it's like the crackling of thorns under a pot. Now, these thorns that he's talking about were used like kindling. They help the fire get started, but they don't last very long and they don't produce heat to heat up the food, to heat up the pot. So they're just there for a moment and then they're gone. He says, like that, that's like the laughter of fools. It's there for a moment, but it's frivolous. It doesn't mean anything. There's no lasting value. There's no lasting impact. This is where the laughter of fool leads. It brings nothing good to your soul. It brings no lasting change. Like everything else, it's just a distraction. It only keeps you from transforming. And how many times are we warned in these verses about the, trans, uh, about the distractions that keep us from growing, that keep us from being transformed, that take our minds off of God and how God wants us to live? The things that keep us from facing what God wants us to face. But we're reminded even in verse 7 here, to be on guard. Surely, the, surely oppression drives the wise into madness. Even the wise can become mad and crazy and foolish. The wise can fall. The wise can be tempted. The wise can take advantage of other people for their own personal gain. They might not always stay in the category of the wise. They might be bribed. And so their heart is corrupted. There's a danger in that pendulum swinging from the wise all the way to the mad because when that happens, sin is given room to take root in your heart. And would we look at these verses, look at these first seven verses here in Ecclesiastes, would we look at this instruction from these verses, as Solomon telling us what is good in our lives, what is good and where we need to be and what we need to go through and what God even uses in our lives to bring about his transforming grace in our lives. These are not things to be escaped. They are not things to avoid. They are not things that we should run away from, but we must say these are some of the means that God uses to make us the people that he wants us to be. And in order for our lives to follow the pattern laid out before us here, it requires us to have a submissive spirit. Submissive to say, God knows what is good for my soul. God knows what is needed. God knows what is required in my life to make me more godly. And it does not follow the logic of this world. But God's way and God's design is the better way and the best way. And because it is his way, I can be content with that. Number three, be content with God's faithful provision. Be content with God's faithful provision. 
verse 8 begins along the line of verse 1. You see that there. The end of a thing, like death, is better than its beginning, like birth. When something begins, you don't yet know the outcome. You don't yet know how it is all going to turn out. Life has to go through the process of life to find out how life will end, where life will be when all is said and done. That's why he says it's better to be patient in spirit than to be proud in spirit. The patient in spirit is long-suffering in this life. The patient spirit endures until the end. Understanding that the end is better than the beginning, we must be patient in life. The proud, however, they try to take matters into their own hands. They have a particular desired outcome and they try to force life to get what they want. There is no waiting upon God for the proud, there is no trusting God. They know life and how they believe it should go. And so they will do what needs to be done and sometimes whatever they need to do because they believe they know how life works best for them. That is the proud. How do you tell the patient and the proud apart in this life? Verse 9 gives the answer. It's the proud who become quickly angered. That's why he says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry. Why? Because anger lodges itself, finds a home in the heart of fools. James 1, 19-20 says something similar. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And why do some people become angry? Why is it that you might be quickly angered? Is it ever because something threatens to tread on your kingdom? You know your life. You know the way that you want it to go. You know how everything is and everything is in its place. And someone comes in and threatens that. They threaten your kingdom. They threaten you as king or queen of your kingdom. And you lash out in anger. How awful that is when it happens against other people. How awful it is when it happens against God. If God would come in and tread upon the kingdom that you have set up for yourself and your kingdom is threatened by him and you lash out in anger. This is not the way it's supposed to be, God. This is not my plan. God has a better kingdom than the kingdom that you've made for yourself. That's his kingdom with his king, Jesus Christ. That's why, that's why you don't have to build a kingdom. How freeing is that? You don't have to build a kingdom in your life. You don't have to be the ruler, the king of your life. We can let, God, we can let Jesus Christ be king. We can let him tear down all of the walls that we've built up in our lives trying to protect ourselves. We can give it all to him because we know that he cares for us. My father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall and so to him 
I leave it all. What else do we know about the one who is prideful in spirit? They say something, don't they? Verse 10. Why were the former days better than these? And Solomon says, don't say that. The proud in spirit say, remember the good old days. Remember how much better it was back then? Remember the way things used to be? What are you saying when you say things like that? Remember when God was good? (laughs) Remember when God had blessed us back then? Remember when life was better back then? Are you saying that you're discontent with what God is doing in your life today? And Solomon comes and he stabs a heart in the worship of nostalgia. The problem we have is that we have selective memories. The good old days were just as hard and difficult as we find the present. We tend only to remember the good things, the things that we like, the things that fill our memories with happiness and joy. We don't fill our minds with the difficulties of the past. And that's why Solomon says, it's not from wisdom that you say these things. Has not God given you what you need today? Is his faithful provision for you today sufficient for what you need to get you through? Don't live in the past. He's given you everything you need to live for him today. He is faithful in the present. He has provided all that you need. Whatever you are going through now, whatever might be causing you to suffer now, God will care for you. He is good. Solomon goes on to say, wisdom is also good. Wisdom is good, relatively speaking, It gives advantage to you under the sun. It can give you some protection, like some money can give you some protection. It's not ultimate. Money can't protect you from everything, but it can protect you from some things. And Solomon says, wisdom's like that. It can protect you from some things. It can't protect you from everything. It does preserve life from the one who has, or life for the one who has it. So again, another good thing. God has given you wisdom. He's provided you wisdom. That is a good thing in your life that you need now. So do we see these things that he's saying here? We have to depend upon God who brings us to the end. To be patient while we live our lives as we live it in God's goodness, as he provides what we need so that we can patiently endure, so that we can be long-suffering in life. To be content with what he has given us so that we know his faithfulness, that he will care for us in the present that he will provide for us in the present, and that he's provided for us with his own son, Jesus Christ, to shepherd us, to lead us, and care for us even in the present so that we can be content with the ministry that he does in our lives. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what's going to get you through that? God, I'm angry. I don't want to be in this valley. God, I want to remember the good old days, not the day of the valley. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, providing faithfully. Finally, number four, be content with what God has made crooked in your life. Be content with what God has made crooked in your life. Finally, Solomon commands us to think. That's why he says, consider. Here's what we're to think about. Here's what we're to meditate on. Here is what we are to draw our minds to. And it says the work of God, doesn't it? Yes, I want to. I love to draw my mind to the work of God. How uplifting and encouraging it is to think of all that God has done and all that God is doing. The work of God tells us that this is an active God. That this is a living God. That he is high and lifted up. That he is separate from his creation. But that he is also working in his creation. But what is the work of God that we are to think about? Who can make straight what he has made crooked? What has God done? God has made some things crooked. He has made some things crooked in your life. And you have experienced them. They've brought suffering and hurt. They have been difficult and trying. It's the work of God to make some things crooked in your life. It is the work of God to throw some curveballs in your life. It is the work of God to bring terrible, heart-wrenching difficulties and hardships. And oh, that we would say, great are the works of the Lord, even when he makes crooked ways in the paths of your life. Praise him for what he has done. Praise him for what he has made, even the crooked. If God has made it, you can look kindly upon it. Because God has brought it and made it what it is, crooked in your life for a reason. It's not capricious. It doesn't happen by chance or by accident. God knows exactly what he is doing, why he is doing it, and why it must happen in your life. And it doesn't depend upon you figuring it out. That's what it says. You can't make straight what God has made crooked. Again, who knows better? You or God? God has put this thing, God has made this crooked thing in your life as a Puritan Thomas Boston says it, God has put a crook in your lot. And we think, foolishly sometimes I think, if I just know the why, if I just know the reason, if I just learn the lesson, that then it's going to stop. We can't fix it. You may think you know why. You may get to the bottom of it. But the suffering might still be there. The pain might still be there. The crooked way might still be there. Who can make what's crooked straight? Not you, not me, only God. God has made things crooked in your life for a reason. 
And that's meant to bring you to God. It's meant to make you run to him. It's meant to make you cling and depend on him. And it's a touchstone that he uses. God uses these crooked things in your life as a touchstone in your life to show who are true Christians and who are counterfeit Christians. How you respond, how you go through these things, how you live these things out in your life is an important thing because it's a way for God to discover who are those who are truly going to follow me and endure to the end and who are those who are going to forsake and turn away. Even in the parable that Jesus teaches about the, the seeds and the soil, remember the one seed that falls and Jesus, and explain it, says, These people, joy sprang up for a time. They were excited for a time, but then what? Trials and tribulations and persecutions and hardship and difficulty and suffering came in and they couldn't handle it anymore. Those people weren't saved. Listen, listen to how God's word teaches us about how to think about suffering and trials in our lives. James 1, 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One more, Romans 5, 3-5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you hear a reoccurring theme in those verses? Count it all joy. Rejoice. The crooked, crooked way in your life is not meant to be evil in your life, even though sometimes it very much feels that way. The crooked in your life is meant for good. It's meant to draw you to God. It's meant to make you more like Christ. It's meant to bring greater glory to God. It's meant to wean you from the world. It's telling you, you are not home yet. The best is not here and now, but it's yet to come. You are a stranger, a stranger and an exile in a foreign land. Take down that home sweet home sign that you've hung up in your heart. You are longing for the wrong things because you're not longing and desiring God above all else. And how many, how many people, how many Christians... You have these crooked ways in your life right now that God has made and God has put there. How many Christians in that day when they are in Emmanuel's land gathered around the throne of God will bless God for the crooked ways that he has put in their lives? I would say all of them. All Christians one day are going to be there in eternity praising God even for the crooked things in their life that they had to go through. Because they knew they were there for a reason and for a purpose. And it brings this humility upon us. God not only makes the day of prosperity, God makes the day of adversity. And so we consider and know that we cannot find out anything that will be after us. We cannot figure out the future 
we are kept in our place, we are humbled, we are reminded that our posture has to be one that remains in humility. We are reminded that we are distinct from our Creator, that He sovereignly, graciously, mercilessly, and compassionately rules over us. He is to be worshipped, whatever the day may be, whether it's the day of prosperity or whether it's the day of adversity. And we know that in all of this, God does not sin. God cannot be tempted and tempts no one. We know that he cannot even look upon sin, yet he has orchestrated the willing choices of sinful men to accomplish his plan and his end. The truth is that God has made that which is crooked, that God has made the day of adversity, is meant to bring you comfort and consolation in your lives and into your minds. It's not a better position to say, well, God didn't know that that was going to happen in your life. Does that bring comfort to you? When you go through this kind of suffering and someone say, says, well, God didn't know this was going to happen in your life. God doesn't have a plan for your life. God's not in control of your life. That leaves me hopeless. What is it for? Why am I going through it? The only comfort comes from knowing that God is actually the one who's made it and in control of it and using it in my life. It's not for not. And to know that God even put that crook in Jesus' lot. And Jesus feels that tension in his own life when he's there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he comes and he bows before the Father and says this, My soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Christ endured what God made crooked in his life. Christ endured the cross to bring about the greatest work that the world has ever seen, the redemption of sinners. Jesus Christ walked through the day of adversity. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that sinners could be forgiven, so that the burden of your sin would fall away, so that you would no longer have to stand before God guilty, condemned to the lake of fire forever, but that you could know the saving grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He experienced being forsaken by God the Father as the sin-bearing substitute, the perfect sacrifice for sinners so that sinners could be brought into the very presence of God and even have the presence of God dwell in them through the Holy Spirit. He did not escape what God had made crooked. He submitted himself to the will of the Father He accomplished exactly what God wanted him to accomplish, the salvation of sinners. So you do not need to escape the crook that is in your life, that is in your lot. You do not need to find another way out. You can continue entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly. And this is the whole life of a Christian self-denial. That's what suffering and adversity and the crooked way in your life is meant to do. I am denying myself. I'm denying the control that I want in my life. Jesus said to his disciples, you want to follow me? Take up your cross daily. Deny yourself and follow me. That is the way of the Christian life. And it's a life of joy.
It's a life of good things. It's a life of meaning and purpose, and it's a life that lasts in the presence of God into eternity. And nothing, nothing can take that away from you. All the suffering that you might be going through, all of the difficult things, all of the adversity is there because of the grace of God that is, that is in your life to transform you and change you for your greater good and for God's greater glory. And listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That crook is not going to separate you from Jesus Christ. That day of adversity is not going to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So cling to him, look to him, follow him. And be changed. Let's pray. Father, use your word in us. Today we pray. Help us see your goodness and your glory. And Lord, if there is someone here today who has not put their faith in you, who does not know this kind of hope, that today they would say, I'm, I'm putting my life fully, I'm putting my life in the hands of Jesus Christ. I'm trusting in him. I'm repenting of my sin. I'm turning away from that and I'm wanting to follow Jesus solely, confessing him as Lord. Lord, I pray if there's someone here today that needs to do that, that they would. That they would, they would begin to follow Christ with all that they are. Lord, I pray that for those who are following Christ, that we would have this kind of hope that we would be those who are denying ourselves daily and following in the footsteps of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who saved us and rescued us. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior. Amen.